Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the ancient history of counting and the latest from the Nature Briefing. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petrichow. First up on the show, reporter Adam Levy has been pondering some important questions. Hello there. How old are you? How tall are you? How many siblings do you have? And how much money do you have in your wallet right now? Whatever your answers, they reveal a fundamental way in which we see the world through numbers. But how did our ancient ancestors start to think in numbers? And how can researchers even begin to unearth the history of such an intangible idea? Well, in this week's Nature, reporter Colin Barris has written a feature all about the efforts to uncover the human history of numbers. It's something that seems so familiar, and yet when you begin to look into the origins of something like numbers, it, it sort of quickly becomes a little unfamiliar when you realise how strange it is that we, that we do this. So what is it about numbers that is strange and unique to us humans? After all, other species can roughly assess quantities. But humans have formalised numbers into concrete ideas and symbols, far beyond what any wild animal does. We can understand quantity using these abstract ideas such as two-ness or symbols such as the number two written on a piece of paper or words like the number two spoken out loud. To answer this question of how we built up our understanding of numbers, researchers are using evidence from across the globe and spanning disciplines of science. Through such work, scientists hope they can begin to dig up the origins of humans' relationship with numbers. Archaeologist Francesco Derrico has found instances of bones marked by humans, hinting at the origins of counting. One of these dates back some 40,000 years, uncovered in a cave in South Africa, as Francesco describes. A fibula of a baboon with 29 notches 
uh, deeply cut into it, which show that they are not just a decoration of the object. So the, the best interpretation for that is that, that something was recording a numerical quantity. One theory is that humans first created notches on bones for other purposes, maybe through butchering meat or through decoration. This allowed them to make the mental leap that these symbols could be used for counting. But interpreting such evidence, let alone creating a complete theory from it, is incredibly challenging. Here's Colin again. Because it's, it's fascinating, but very, very difficult to understand what an individual who was living 50, 60,000 years ago was thinking, what they had in mind when they were doing particular activities. All we have is artefacts that they leave behind, and then we have to try to interpret what those artefacts might mean. For cognitive archaeologist Karen Lee Overman, the artefacts that researchers uncover can only tell a part of the story. She argues that the first steps humans took could have been much the same as the first steps we all take today as little kids, representing numbers with fingers on the hand. Sooner or later, you need to use your hand for something other than representing quantity. So you might go to some kind of device that does what the hand does, but can do it for longer. And uh, a typical device that you might use would be a tally or maybe a group of stones. Of course, a group of stones, let alone finger counting, can't be preserved easily in the archaeological record. So researchers are using evidence from fields as wide-ranging as psychology, anthropology, archaeology and evolutionary biology to shed light on the matter. You have to look at a wide variety of, of different sources of evidence and then infer from them how it might have worked in the past. For Karen Lee, contemporary cultures have a lot to teach us about the evolution of numbers in our ancestors. Researchers can, for example, look at certain hunter-gatherer societies today who only have words for the first few numbers, one, two, three perhaps, before jumping to many. The varying use of numbers across different groups suggests that their use is strongly connected to possessions and materials. So we do tend to count the things that are important to us. If you're worried about survival, then you might be counting how much food you need to get you through the long, cold winter into the spring when, when the food comes back. Other researchers look at how our words for numbers vary across languages. Comparing the words for small numbers suggests that such words have changed very slowly over the time since those languages split. So when they project that rate of change, or I should say that rate of stability backwards, it suggests that words for the numbers 1 through 5 in some language families could be 100,000 years or older. The origin of numbers may date back many thousands of years, but the research that hopes to get at these origins is still relatively new. For Colin, speaking to different researchers and putting together his feature has revealed a blossoming field. Yeah, it's an exciting time. It feels like there's going to be quite a lot of interesting work coming out over the next five or ten years or so as more people begin to think about this topic. And different researchers come to different conclusions as they think more about this topic. Were fingers on our hands or notches on a bone the crucial ingredient to start representing numbers? Or perhaps our ancestors used something else entirely? It may be impossible to ever know for sure. But one thing we can count on is that researchers aren't going to stop trying to dig up the answer. Here's Francesco. 
there is a strong disagreement and I think that is, is the key for science. Disagreement is something we need to build on in order to test theories. That was Francesco Derrico of the University of Bordeaux in France. You also heard from Karen Lee Overman of the University of Colorado in the US and Colin Barris, who's now at New Scientist, all speaking to Adam Levy. To read more, there'll be a link to Colin's feature article in the show notes. Coming up in the show, we'll be hearing the latest estimates for humans' maximum lifespan and the likelihood that tardigrades survived a crash landing on the moon. Both of those stories coming up in the briefing chat. Before that, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Noah Baker. Clownfish are some of the most recognisable creatures in the oceans. In part, that's down to some successful cinematic outings, but it's also because of their distinctive patterns and colours. Now a team of researchers have observed that the pattern of white stripes on clownfish is dependent on the species of sea anemone in which the fish developed. The researchers analysed the concentration of a key growth hormone, thyroid hormone, in clownfish that lived in different species of anemone, and found that the levels of the hormone varied depending on the anemone they grew up in. Then they exposed clownfish larvae to varying concentrations of thyroid hormone, and found that the clownfish's characteristic white stripes appeared sooner in fish that received the highest dose. The authors say this could explain why white stripes develop faster in fish that live in certain species of anemone. Find that research in full in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, USA. Nestling skin-to-skin immediately after birth has been found to sharply cut the risk of death for high-risk newborns. So-called kangaroo mother care is known to cut the risk of death for babies born early or very small. But such care, which also entails feeding babies exclusively on breast milk, is usually started after babies show signs of a stable condition, even though most mortality occurs before these babies' conditions stabilise. In the new trial, researchers started kangaroo mother care immediately after birth, and found that it improved babies' chances of survival by 25% a benefit so clear that the trial monitors stopped the trial early. Read that research in full in the New England Journal of Medicine. Finally on the show this week, it's time for the briefing chat, where we highlight a couple of stories from the Nature Briefing. Nick, what have you got for us this time round? Well, Ben, I've been looking into the latest estimate for how long humans can live for, and this was an article in Scientific American. Right. I mean, I guess humans are living maybe longer and longer as generations go on. But I suppose I still consider maybe 100 as being a really, really good innings. Is that there or thereabouts, right? Well, people have lived longer than that. And this is trying to work out what would be the maximum ever. So you may remember, I'm going to mangle this name. Sorry, French listeners, but Jean Calmont, who lived until she was 122 and she was the oldest ever person. And This article discusses a study that has been trying to work out like if nothing really went wrong, there was no sort of disease and things like that that normally cause people to die, like how long could you possibly live for? And their estimate is somewhere between 120 to 150 years old. Goodness. So in a maybe idealized scenario, which of course 
very rarely exist, we might be able to push 150. I mean, that's a lot longer than we've got now. Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, you have to solve some big problems. For instance, cancer becomes a lot more common as you get older. But the important thing about this study, according to the article, is that it gives us an estimate of the pace of ageing. So how quickly things start to deteriorate as we get older. And so they looked at things like blood cell counts and step counts. And as we get older, those things change. And in the case of step counts, they start to decline. And also when things happen, so, you know, you have an illness or something like that, like it takes longer to get these things back to normal as well. And the authors of the paper, they discussed how, like, if we know the sort of pace of change, we can perhaps then work out, like, what we can do as sort of interventions into that and potentially get people closer to this limit. Well, my goodness, Nick. I mean, I, I suppose there aren't many people, and as you say, that reach, you know, 120 plus. Where is the data coming from that these researchers have been using? And, and you know, have they just sort of extrapolated it out from there? So this data comes from three different cohorts in the US, UK and Russia. And there aren't any people who are over 120 years old alive today. And so they're basically working out like how these things start to degenerate over time as you age. And then from that, they extrapolate out to work out, well, this is where things would be at a point where you wouldn't be able to, you know, continue to live. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the upper, upper limit, but it's just with what we currently have and, you know, how aging progresses, according to this study, between 120 to 150 years is about as long as we could live if we can solve everything else, which not an easy task. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the kicker, isn't it, Nick? I mean, it's very much an if, like we could live to 150 if we can solve a multitude of problems. So it may be that we're not going to get there anytime soon. Well, I'm going to hope so for my lifespan, but we'll see. Uh, I've got another 100 years yet. But what's your story for this week, Ben? Well, Nick, I am fast becoming the Nature Podcast unofficial tardigrade correspondent. And I've been reading a story from a couple of weeks back that was reported in Science and based upon a paper in Astrobiology. And I really wanted to share it with you. Okay, well, you've piqued my interest. So what is happening in the world of tardigrades? Well, of course, tardigrades are these little animals and they are pretty amazing, right? Like extreme temperature, freezing, radiation, they just shrug it off. It doesn't really bother them that much. But there's a question that's been going around a little bit, and that is, could tardigrades have survived a crash landing on the moon? Wow, okay. The moon is quite an inhospitable place from what I know about it, but if anything could survive, I guess tardigrades could because they are very hardy, but... I guess the question is, could they? Well, let's find out, Nick. Well, let's give a little bit of context here. So back in 2019, you may remember the Israeli space mission Bereshit, it was called, and it crashed on the moon. And it turned out that on board were some tardigrades. And this question, like, could they have survived, has inspired some research and some researchers wanted to find out. But it's also thrown up some interesting insights, which maybe we can talk about in a little bit. And this is kind of how they did it. So they fed 20 tardigrades some moss and some mineral water, and then they froze them for a couple of days. So they entered this state of hibernation, and then they fired them out of a gun. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm guessing, is that to simulate crashing on the moon? Bingo. And it's not any sort of gun, Nick. This is a two-stage light 
gas gun, which has a higher velocity than a conventional gun. And so these deeply hibernating tardigrades were placed in a nylon bullet a few at a time and fired at increasing speeds into some sand. And it seems that the upper limit that they could survive was 900 metres per second. And this gives a momentary shock pressure of up to 1.14 gigapascals, which, trust me, is really, really high. And anything kind of above this was sadly curtains for the tardigrades. But below this, some of them actually made it. Well, that sounds like a heck of an impact, but is that similar to the impact that actually happened when Bereshit crashed onto the moon? So the top line is the tardigrades that hit the moon were unlikely to survive. The lander crashed at a slower speed than the bullet, but apparently the, the shock pressure caused by the frame of this spacecraft meant that this kind of shock would have been much higher and that really would have done for the tardigrades. But this research is interesting because it's not necessarily just about that. It actually may give some information into this theory called panspermia. And I don't know if you know what this is, Nick, but this is a theory that life could hitchhike from maybe a meteorite onto another planet. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I guess if they could survive landing on the moon or something, potentially they could seed more life. But it doesn't seem like they were able to this time. But would a meteor be a different thing and maybe they could survive that? So I think that this theory of panspermia is considered, you know, pretty unlikely. And this isn't going to change that view. But it's not necessarily impossible. So the speeds that meteorites hit the Earth or Mars are higher than the bullets, but some of the sections within a meteorite might experience lower shock pressure. So it's a possibility, but maybe putting that to one side, this research and the calculations in it could offer some useful insights into other things as well. So in this article I read, it could be used maybe to check for life on one of Saturn's moons called Enceladus, which ejects plumes of water out into space. And I think what this research has shown is that if a probe could move slow enough, maybe it could pass through these plumes and see if there's any life there, for example. And that's an interesting one to check, right? Because if you detect something that's dead, you don't know whether it died because you hit it at hundreds of miles a second with a spacecraft or whether it's been dead for a very, very long time. So maybe finding that sweet spot where you can sort of gently cruise through without causing any serious damage, could be a useful one to answer that question. Is there life out there in the solar system? And it seems that tardigrades have played a little role in maybe helping calculate how it could be discovered. Well, thanks for that insight, Ben. It's always fascinating to hear more about these strange creatures. And it's good that we've got our own tardigrade correspondent. So we'll hear more about them in the near future. And listeners, if you want more stories like these, but delivered directly to your inbox, make sure you sign up to The Nature Briefing. Look out for a link of where to do so in the show notes, and you'll also find links to today's stories as well. That's all for this week. But of course, you can drop us a line anytime on email, podcast at nature.com, or on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petridge Howe. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.